Have you ever given someone the wrong gift? Uh, my brother is a firefighter down in, in southwest Florida, and uh, there get people that, from the community that stop by from time to time. One of the guys that stops by uh, fairly often, his, his name was Russ, and uh, he liked just to, to visit them, show support. He'd bring cases of water and food and different things uh, from time to time. But the uh, thing you have to remember about Russ is that he's a double amputee, that um, he, both legs end at, at his knees. And so one Christmas, uh, Russ came by the station with presents for the firefighters, and they found themselves in kind of the awkward situation uh, that many of us have been in before, where someone has a gift for you, uh, and you don't have one for them. And so in a gesture of quick thinking, one of the firefighters grabbed a package from under the station tree that was meant as a part of the Secret Santa activity, and hastily gave it to Russ and said, hey, Russ, you really shouldn't have, uh, but we got something for you. And you would hope that in, in, in that moment, you would grab a coffee cup or a nice clock radio or something, and nearly any present under that tree would have worked. Uh, the one that didn't work for us was the pair of slippers that they grabbed. You know, ah, just uh, not a good situation. And, and Rustin. the opportunities that we have, that through Jesus, God came down to rescue us. And that through his life and his teaching and his death and resurrection, we all have the opportunity to have life, real life, in him. And as we come to Acts chapter 16 this morning in our series, The Church Has Left the Building, we've been talking about the opportunities that we have to share our faith. And we all have those opportunities if we're willing to look in the right places. But here's the thing, in in spite of the opportunities that we have, all being the same recipients of the same gift, all of those people, all of those opportunities, every person that we encounter comes from a different background. And they have their own hang-ups and their own baggage and their own struggles. And we all, in spite of that, need the same thing, the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so that being said, I want to take this morning to look As Paul began his missionary journey last week, and we we looked at his send-off, now he comes to this small town of Philippi. And it's here that we discover three very different people, like I said, with different backgrounds and different situations, different circumstances, but all in need of the very same Jesus. Each of them represent the opportunity that we have to share the gospel in our own lives as well. And each of them have that different background, that different problem, that different need that we see in our world today. But all of them receive the same gospel, the same Jesus that changes not just their circumstances, but their lives and their eternities. And so the first we see, and not just in Philippi, but I want to see each of these three different people as kind of types of the people that we see in our world around us and in our lives today. And the first one we see is, I think we can call it the success story. Uh, We meet the success story in a woman named Lydia, and we first meet Lydia uh, when Paul finds a group of women down by a place of prayer in the river in, in Philippi. So Acts chapter 16, verse 13, we're told of Lydia, the success story. Paul sa- says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Like I said, this morning, I think in Lydia, we see a type uh, in the people that we see around us. In her case, the success story. Because to me, Lydia stands out as an unusual case in the New Testament. We don't generally see a lot of people like her. Uh, First of all, we see that she is a woman. And I don't say this in a misogynistic way, but culturally, in their culture, women weren't highly uh, regarded. They were usually highlighted in this way. In fact, Lydia is the first uh, woman convert of Paul's specifically mentioned by name. But we don't just see that she was a woman. She was a very successful woman. We're told that she was a dealer in purple cloth, this purple dye having come from uh, sea creatures, that you would have to dive down certain seashells. And so this was a, uh, a rarity, a commodity that wasn't very common. And so dealing in this purple cloth, this dye would have left her very wealthy and with very respected clientele. And with that, this business would have opened doors for her. We see that she invites Paul and, and her crew and his crew to her house to um, to come and, and stay there, the house where she is presumably the head of the household and, and has servants and helpers. And with a house that large to accommodate this whole ministry group to come and stay, we, conclu- we can conclude that she was a woman of some means as well. And so I label Lydia the success story because in a culture where women were often subjugated or second class, Lydia had become wealthy and influential and successful. We also see that Lydia was religious. We're told that she is a worshiper of God. Other places in the New Testament, these people are called God-fearers. We saw uh, the same situation with Cornelius a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 10. Someone who followed God, someone who followed the the, uh, Jewish practices, but didn't become a full convert to Judaism. And so by all accounts, looking at Lydia's life, we see in her uh, someone who has it all. She has the job, she has the house, the the money, the influence. She even has some understanding of God. And in her, we get this picture of this well-rounded, successful life. But Lydia was missing something. More accurately, she was missing someone, Jesus. And I think Lydia, not just in this passage, we see stories like hers, but we see them in our world today. That she represents so many people around us that they have a good home and a good job. They're well respected and maybe even have some pretty significant influence in different spheres in their lives. Maybe they even consider themselves spiritual or religious. But yet still they're missing Jesus. And you've probably met people like this. Maybe even you've spoken to them or tried to share your faith with them. But frankly, they're just not really that interested. You know, their life is good, they're moral people, they're happy people, they're sufficient people, and they look at their lives and they say, everything's going well, why do I need Jesus? I think of a few years ago before he announced his, or after he announced his bid for the presidency, uh, in 2015, Donald Trump sat down to an interview uh, where he was asked the question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And Trump, through that time, went on to describe himself as religious and a Protestant. More specifically, he said, I'm a Presbyterian. And then he continued, he said, I'm not sure I have. In response to this question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? He said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. If if I do something wrong, I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. Well, I like to work where I don't really have to ask for it. I like to do the right thing where I don't actually have to ask for forgiveness. Does that make sense to you? 
He said, you know, where you don't make such bad things that you don't have to ask for forgiveness. I mean, I'm trying to lead a life where I don't have to ask God for forgiveness. He went on to say, why do I have to repent? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? And here we see somebody who, by the world's standards, in many ways, is the success story. Donald Trump is, is famous. He has the property. He has the wealth. He has the influence. He was the, the president of our country. And, and still, in him, something he found missing. And when it comes to the success stories around us, we have a message to sell. A message to, to tell that, we, that, that being content can't save you. And being wealthy and influential can't save you. That being religious can't save you. Being successful can't save you. That only Jesus can save you. And so the world around us where so many are wondering why they need Jesus because their life is going so well, we have to illustrate to them that Jesus goes beyond this life. That only Jesus can promise us the life that he means for us to have. Lydia recognized this reality and her heart was open to the message. We move on from Lydia to the, the second person we meet in Philippi. And, and if Lydia is called a success story, then I don't know what we exactly call the person that Luke next highlights. I mean, Lydia had it all. This girl that we next meet had nothing. She owned so little, she didn't even own herself. And so I think in her, we see not the success story, but, but more of the hurting heckler. Verse 16 says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that her hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, I have to admit, when you look at a scene like this, there, there's something odd about what is going on here. I mean, here we have this girl possessed by an impure spirit, an evil spirit, a demon, the very nemesis of Paul's ministry, uh, championing, seemingly, his efforts, Paul's efforts as God's ambassador. And really, that looks like it just doesn't make sense. It's like a, like a Michigan fan cheering for Ohio State. You know, it's a, it's a Cardinals fan jumping ship to join the Cubs. But that's not exactly what's going on here. You see, what this evil spirit, this demon knows is that if he can become Paul's number one PR rep, then he will communicate a very different message for the gospel. A message that says the kingdom of Jesus is not empowered by the Holy Spirit, but by evil spirits. Or a message that says the gospel is not one of a message of freedom, but of oppression. He even twists terms just enough to, to empty the gospel of its power. When he says most high God for a Roman audience, for Roman hearers, they would have heard Zeus, their chief God. And as far as the way of salvation, literally it translates a way of salvation. What this demon is doing as it chases Paul and his missionary crew all over town, what he's saying is, hey, this is, guy is, is peddling the same old stuff you know already. You know, it might sound a little different, but it's just one more way to get to a better end. We, of course, know that only one God can relieve this girl of her suffering. And so after being followed around by this poor PR puppet, Paul finally whirls around and demands the spirit to leave. And I love that it takes nothing more than the name of Jesus to spend, send this spirit, you know, running for its life. 
But here's what I want you to notice. Verse 19 says, When her owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Literally what it says is their hope of making money had gone out of her. You see, the owners show no more concern for her than they do for the demon that, 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 that has just left her. They're more concerned that they have lost their means of making money than for the girl who is now healed at their feet. I'm not sure who had exploited this girl more, the demon or her owners. But here's why the story is important. Because here in the same city where we meet the Lydia's, the success stories, we find people who are on the totally opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, success isn't even in this girl's vocabulary. And so in our same circumstances, as we go about life and we find the success stories, we will also find the hurting and the broken. And what do we do with people who are hurting like this? Sometimes it can be quick to dismiss them. You know, they brought it upon themselves, or they got what they deserve, or, you know, you play with fire and you get burned. Or perhaps we try to shame them into change. Or maybe worse, we, we look at this particular group of people as irredeemable, and so we withhold our grace, and instead we offer scorn. Now, please understand, I'm not advocating a gospel devoid of the need for salvation. I mean, feeling the weight of our sin is what brings us to Repentance. But how can we be ministers of the gospel if we are content to talk about Jesus without looking like him? How is it that we can share our faith without offering help and healing to the broken people calling out behind us? And that's perhaps the hardest part of this. That the girl following after Paul isn't looking to be healed. She isn't looking to be saved. She's trying to destroy his witness. She isn't asking for salvation, but instead she's crying out, your message is old news and ineffective and powerless. I think of a story a preacher I know of named Vince Antonucci. He's a preacher in Las Vegas. And of course, in Las Vegas, you get all kinds of different clientele coming to your churches. And so one specific instance, they had a man that had come and he had determined walking into church that he was going there for the sole purpose of becoming a heckler. That he was going to make so much noise and so much fuss and so much ruckus that it would just disrupt the service and and destroy everything going on there that morning. And so he sits down, and by the time he gets ready to to heckle, the sermon is over. He he missed his opportunity. He got so engrossed in that he forgot to do what he came to do. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to come back the next week. And so he goes back the next week, and again, he, he gets so captivated by the message that he forgets to heckle the preacher. A few months later, they baptized him in the baptistry parking lot. (laughs) You see, the ministry of the gospel is the ministry of rescuing hostages that are often trying to shoot at us as well as the enemy shooting at us. The message of the gospel is reaching out to hurting people who are often lashing out against us. Verse 19 again says, When our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You see, sometimes when we reach out to the hurting hecklers, to those who are most in need, 
of the healing message of the gospel, we'll find ourselves on the bad end of that equation. We'll find ourselves in the midst of opposition and difficulty and hardship, but even in the face of that, what we find is that even then, we still have an opportunity to share our message. And it's in so doing, we find the third person that we meet in Philippi and in our world around us. We'll call him the crying out in crisis. Here Paul and Silas are beaten and they're locked with their legs in the socks and they're thrown into the inner cell. I mean, this is like a maximum security arrangement. But reading verse 25, you'd, you'd never know it. Because about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke of the word, the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household, household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And here are Paul and Silas, you know, seemingly unfazed by their pains that they had just experienced. They've been beaten, they've been humiliated, they're in this uncomfortable situation, but rather than wallow, they rejoice in the results that the gospel has achieved. As Paul and Silas sit and sing and rejoice, the fellow prisoners and even the guards listen on, and suddenly this earthquake happens and the, shakes the prison to its foundation, breaks apart the chains, doors fly open, and it's in this moment that we see the one crying out in crisis. The jailer, assuming that his prisoners have escaped, readies himself to fall on his sword, to take his own life, because under Roman law, his life would be forfeit for letting them escape. Paul's voice rings out, you know, stop, we're all still here. And then he asks the question that will open doors to the gospel every single time. He says, what must I do to be saved? And please understand here, I don't think he's asking, what can I do so that I can go to heaven? This guard is, is a Roman citizen, a Gentile jailer, probably a former soldier with no concept of Jesus or his death or his resurrection. And so saved for him? is what can rescue me from my crisis? You know, I could face death in light of this event if the authorities think the prisoners escaped. What will save me? And so Paul gets the opportunity to tell him what can ultimately save him. And I think every day, if we know where to look, if we have the eyes to see it, we find people in our lives facing moments of crisis. Maybe it's small things, like their car won't start or they can't pay their bills, or big ones. Their husband of 40 years is, is gone, or they lost their job, or they're praying for a healing that just won't come, or their marriage is not likely to make it. And as we face these crises, as we see these moments of crisis, it's into these that we get the opportunity to speak, to speak hope and life and love and grace, to speak of the Lord who can save us from any crisis that we face. As we look around us and we see people dealing with moments of crisis and not knowing where to turn, we have opportunities as the church to tell them about the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation.
Three people. Three opportunities. A Gentile jailer, an enslaved girl, and a successful woman. These are the three people that we meet in Philippi. And if we have the eyes to see it, the people that we will see all around us every day. But perhaps what I find most interesting about these three comes in light of a prayer that Jewish men would pray upon waking every morning. Paul himself would have prayed this prayer prior to coming to Jesus. The prayer is this. Praise God that he has not made me a Gentile. Praise God that he has not made me a slave. Praise God that he has not made me a woman. Gentile, jailer, enslaved girl, successful woman. How will we use the opportunities that we have to share the gospel to the world around us? Will we see the success stories, the good people, the moral people, the happy people, those who think they have everything they need in their lives? And be able to convince them that they still need Jesus. We see the hurting hecklers, the broken people, even those who are antagonistic toward our faith, and meet them with hope and healing. We see those crying out in crisis, unsure of where to turn and speak words of hope into their lives, or content ourselves to sit back and let them fall on their swords. Will we meet our audiences, the opportunities that we have to share the gospel as we leave this building to, become, to, be, to be the church? Will we see these opportunities? And as we open them and, and as they come into our lives every day, will we meet them with a gospel of hope? Or will we pray, thank you, God, for not making me like them? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, as we've been talking about leaving this building to be, to be the church, to, to put hands and feet to the message, to what we do here on a Sunday morning. We recognize that if we have the eyes to see it, we will meet people all around us in different stages of their life, different stages of, of their faith, different stages of, of their knowledge about how much you love them. And God, whether it be successful people that think they, think they have everything they need, or hurting people who are antagonistic to the faith, or just people who are crying out in crisis, unsure of where to turn, we pray that we would have the eyes to see, that your spirit would be at work within us to bring them the message of the gospel of the good news of Jesus, that there is a life available to us outside of this one that we live for a short time in the here and now, but a life that we can live eternally because of what Jesus has done for us, because there's a God who loves us, loves us so much that he would send his son to die on our behalf to take our penalty so that we could live, that we have this message. Let us not keep it to ourselves. Let your spirit be at work within us through wisdom and discernment to have the eyes to see people who need to hear of your gospel, whatever their stage in life, that as we work alongside them or walk alongside them or live alongside of them, that we would be able to offer them what they need and what they need is Jesus. God, we pray this in Jesus' powerful name this morning. Amen.